Coming up on this episode of Business Interrupted. I've personally sat in every seat in an operation from a warehouse operative picker and packer to a forklift driver, team leader, supervisor, to the CEO and MD, mm. and now founder of my own business. So that, I think, gives me a unique perspective of working with founders, working with fast-paced, high-growth yeah. businesses. I recognise what's needed at different stages in that growth journey because I've been on the other end of it. Business Interrupted. Business Interrupted. Business Business Interrupted. interrupted. With Trent and Richard. Powered by wearefulfillment.co.uk. Hi everybody, welcome to Business Interrupted. I've got some feedback. Go on. Somebody said to me, I like the podcast, but I've no idea what you're actually talking about or what the crux is of what the podcast is set up to do. Mm-hmm. So maybe we start with that stairs to why we have actually done this series of the podcast. Do you know? Well, I'm hoping you can kind of enlighten me. You just told me to do it, if I'm honest. Okay. I just literally said, get into that studio yeah. and you didn't Sit question it. Sit in that it. chair. Yeah. Um, and then listen to you 90% of the time. So why are we doing this podcast and why have we brought these people in to speak to us? Because it's fun. We like learning about other people and we like learning about other businesses. So ultimately, we're founders of a business. We're co-founders. We're co-founders, yeah. yeah. We're friends as well. Yes, which and comes first. Exactly. And we're kind of fascinated by the founder mindset, aren't we? We are. And that's what we're trying to tap into as part of this podcast, to try and understand the mindset as to what makes founders of their own businesses tick. Because mm. everyone's got their own journey, and it's bloody hard work sometimes. Yeah. Um, See if there's any similarities, because you'd think there would be, potentially, because it takes great determination, but actually, mm-hmm. they're all pretty different, yeah. aren't they? Exactly. And maybe it's just us trying to find out to see if we're just unique or different or weird that we choose to do what we're doing or whether other people are doing the same thing as us. Have you got a hook, by the way? Because I do not have one. I've got one. So one of the things that we do in the podcast is because so many podcasts don't get listened to, no one gets to the very end, we do a hook at the start and give you the answer to the hook at the end. It's something of interest in terms of business. Okay. And I'm going to ask you a question and I'll give you the answer to it at the very end, okay? So do you know who Huang Dong Yuk is? He is responsible for a phenomenon and he's worth tens of millions of pounds. But in 2009... <gasps> is it Flappy Bird? In 2009, he had to sell his laptop because he had absolutely no money. But the thing that he wrote on his laptop it now has made him worth tens of millions of pounds. Did he write Bohemian Rhapsody? He wrote something. What did he write? The f- code for Flappy Bird. What's Flappy Bird? I don't know what Flappy Bird is. It was a silly game that everybody got addicted to where you just press up and down. Do you App mean Crossy Store... Road? No, the App Store blocked it because it became so popular. I've never heard of it. What did he write? Nothing to do with Bitcoin. Nothing to do with Bitcoin. It's a shame. But he wrote something on his laptop, but he was rejected for it by 10 different places. Ooh, a bit he more context. He had to yeah. sell his laptop for $675 to be able to keep going and feeding himself and now he's worth tens of billions of dollars. Tens of billions? Because originally it was millions. What? <laughs> tens of millions. Okay. Yeah, tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> he's not that successful. <laughs> he's only moderately successful. Any idea? We'll come up with it. We will come okay. up with it. Yeah. So on that note... Should we introduce our guest? We brought somebody in that we're quite close to. Indeed we did. Met them ten, nine months ago. Before Christmas. November last year. Yeah. And it's been a wild ride. It certainly has. It's been interesting. Yep. Introduce Jimmy to us, Trent. So Jamie is the founder of Impact Evolve, which I will let Jamie do the explanation, but we brought Jamie in last year as part of our journey to level up our skills, level up the business's skills on operations and logistics front. 
And it was a no-brainer at the time that Jamie was the man to do so. And from then, the kind of relationships evolved to peers, friends, workers, everything, I think. Yeah. We've, we've cried on Jamie's shoulders several times. Jamie's cried on our shoulders probably a few times as well. We've shaken each other a few times and gone, what the hell are we all doing? He's beaten me at table tennis a few times. He's beaten me at table tennis a few times and probably not for the last time. Jamie, what's your first recollection of being in this place with us? I didn't really know what to expect. It's all the building. Looked very nice. I thought, these guys know what they're doing. <laughs> now, we had a walk around, and you'd given me the insight as to what to expect and the challenges that you were facing and where you might need some support. But, of course, you didn't know exactly what that was, and you wanted me to get underneath the skin of what was going on, really. You didn't lie to me. That's all I would say. You were very <laughs> honest, and, you know, everything that you said was true. We had a walk around the warehouse, and all I saw was opportunity, to be fair. Yeah. You've got ambitious plans. As with most founders in fast-paced, high-growth businesses, they don't necessarily come from a supply chain and operations world. And they've got great ideas, they've got great products, ways of working, thoughts, plans, but need that extra bit of help to figure out how the operation needs to work, how the supply chain needs to knit into that. And that's really how we've started working together. So yeah, all I saw was opportunity, albeit yeah. a lot of work to do. It's probably worthwhile contextualising for listeners what we do. So We Are Fulfillment is not completely a stereotypical third-party logistics 3PL company, but we house and store inventory and stock on behalf of our partners, plug into their e-commerce platform, whether it's Shopify, Amazon, eBay, wherever they sell, we then house the stock, send it out on their behalf, make sure it gets there on time and in full, whether that's by pallets, boxes, and then we've got value-added services on top of that. It's basically like a big old Amazon-esque warehouse. Yeah, mini Amazon. Uh, mini so that's Amazon. what we say when we're speaking to somebody that doesn't understand really what it is there's been quite a lot of people because we bang on on linkedin a little bit do we yeah we do a little bit they say what the heck is 3pl and then when you explain it's like oh speaking of linkedin that's how we reached out to jamie yep stumbled across you and it was a no-brainer yeah i think i was doing similar to you and spouting a load of stuff out on linkedin <laughs> and you know it works it's important to be able to get your brand your identity mm. out there and be able to connect to people it's great that we connected and the relationships evolved from there hasn't it it's been an interesting journey up to now and no doubt it's going to continue we were kind of on similar places with both businesses so mm. it might be worth going down where you've come from being what you've done over the last however many years so i've personally spent nearly 25 years in supply chain warehousing logistics i know i don't look old enough but started at the age of five <laughs> it is true <laughs> all of that time was spent in fast-paced high growth and most importantly, I think, founder-led businesses. And typically those businesses are multi-channel. They're probably doing more than the operation and the supply chain is able to cope with. And my role in those businesses had been always to manage founder expectation versus not wanting to be the anchor around the ankles, if you like, of the business and needing to make sure that we could, one, keep the wheels on the bus of the operation, but also continue to scale and grow. And mm. that's not easy. And I had a lot of years in those types of businesses i think 10 years at hotel chocolat where that business grew from i think 10 million 15 million when i joined to almost 130 million when i left we introduced nearly 70 80 retail stores across the uk but also in japan and the us we grew a subscription business from nothing to 100,000 members in the uk the online business grew to 30 million pound piece of the revenue pie and we did pretty much all of our manufacturing in-house so from when I joined it was probably 90% of the product was bought in so mm -hmm. when I left 90% of the product was in-house manufactured and that 
brings its own different complexities yeah, yeah. And, and challenges of needing to scale that business. How big was that team at Hotel Shock about doing that? That trajectory is incredible. I think I had about six different roles at Hotel Chocolat and that's been quite a similar story in most businesses that I've been in because they've been fast paced and Mm. high growth that presents opportunity and obviously in life if you work hard if you do a good job you're in that shop window for that opportunity and I was lucky enough to work with a lot of people that recognized that and gave me that opportunity so I guess to answer your question, those team sizes changed multiple times from having a team of sort of four or five when I first joined to having a team of well over 200 across multiple sites and multiple countries that needed to scale up and scale down at multiple times through peak operations. That's a skill in itself and learning what those different challenges are and the battle scars that that presents you to enable you to be able to scale that business successfully was something that I take great value in and a lot of pride actually in that 10 year journey. I still have a lot of time for that business and the people Mm. that were in it and I learned so much. There were so many good people in there that I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity that that business gave me and lots of others that I've been in since. And that's something that I try to keep close to me now that I've got my own business, making sure I recognize that in others and mm. present opportunity back, which is one of the reasons I, I started my business. What was your first job at Hotel Chocolat? And what was your last role? I think my first job was as a, a warehouse operations manager on a single site. And when I left, I was the head of supply chain development. And in between, I'd been fulfillment center manager, head of logistics, head of operations, and various roles that were necessary as that business scaled and grew. The role that I finished in didn't exist when I started. But as new roles were presented, as new opportunities were opened up, I was in the shop window mm. to be able to take that. Or often I'd just take a land grab and go, I'll do that. Mm. You know, I'm capable of doing that. And I think that's the inner drive that has sort of helped me get to where I've got to today. But to expand on that question as part of what I think is one of the USPs of Impact Evolve is that I've personally sat in every seat in an operation from a warehouse operative picker and packer to a forklift driver, team leader, supervisor, to the CEO and MD, mm. and now founder of my own business. So that, I think, gives me a unique perspective of working with founders, working with fast-paced, high-growth yeah. businesses. I recognize what's needed at different stages in that growth journey because I've been on the other end of it. That's so telling. You can't fake that because there's, there's a lot of business coaches and business mentors that decide to do it completely off the cuff and buy a pack that's kind of one size fits all. And here's your documents to fill out. And I don't particularly agree with that. I mean, you get a lot of them LinkedIn, but there's a, such a difference in caliber of like coaches and mentors from that all the way to yourself. I think being authentic is the thing that I value the most. And you know, I was actually having a session with my team on what are our company values. We're quite young in our journey. We're less than a year old in as far as Impact Evolve goes. Establishing those USPs, those values to me now are important. And mm. the one that really stands out to me is, is authenticity. Mm. And what you see is what you get. I try to not be something I'm not. I know mm. what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. And I feel very comfortable in my own skin saying that now is if you had this conversation 10 years ago, I would have probably not answered it in the same way. Yeah. Um, but I think as you learn more about yourself, you become comfortable in being able to have those conversations. You grow as a person, as a, as a leader, as a, as a coach, and you feel comfortable saying it because mm-hmm. you know you add value in different ways. So you yeah. don't need to be great at everything. When you were at Hotel Chocolat, did that inspire you, do you think, to where you are today? There's obviously more chapters to what you've done, which we'll come on to, but what did you see in Hotel Chocolat that kind of drove you through that business to take all those roles? First and foremost, I think there was a brilliant story behind the brand that they lived and breathed. Mm. It's a vertically integrated business, so you could track the product all the way from what we 
called at the time Bean to Bar. So we had relationships with the farmers out in Kenya and Ghana and we would invest profits back into their knowledge of being able to farm their crops. We would make sure that they were paid a fair price for their crop. In fact, regardless of the quality of the crop, we would always hit a minimum commitment to them. We reinvested that money back into them to enable them to become better farmers, to Mm. help their families, to Mm. give them the things that they perhaps didn't have in the areas that they lived. I remember us building a health centre out in Ghana, which was a very emotive project to be involved in. I spent some time out in St Lucia as well and being able to meet people that you know really cared about that product from its very source and you could see the impact that that business was having on them directly in their personal and family lives was like nothing I've ever seen before up to that stage in my career and I thought this is just unbelievable what a journey. What age were you whenever you were doing these trips to St. Lucia etc? Good question I'm gonna have to cast my mind back probably yeah. 30 to 35 right you, are you thinking that this is how business works and everyone's got this very strong moral ethic kind of approach to it or were you not naive enough to think that everyone was like this bit of both probably i think it aligned with my own personal strong beliefs knowing that you're being able to give opportunity to people mm. in whatever format that comes in whether that's the team and the people that you've got directly in your team or whether that's an extended reach of people that are thousands and thousands of miles away but without them you can't do the job that you Mm. need to do the business can't grow and Mm. you know every one of those parts needs to come together to be successful they did a really good job of that and you know they had a tasting club which was the subscription model of the business and effectively it was classified as a membership and as a usp of being in that club is you got to be part of that journey you got to be part of that story a percentage of those profits were re-engineered back into those communities to enable people to strive and grow in their own lives and that's more than business isn't it and that, that holds a good place in my heart. And the end product is brilliant as well. Well, I remember <laughs> just outside Canary Wharf, this beautiful big waitrose underneath Canary Wharf Tower, yeah. which I'd go to quite a bit. And then if, when you came out, there was a little tiny, beautiful boutique hotel chocolat store. Yeah. And everything looked amazing, so pristine. And I remember thinking, that's the pristine chocolate. That yeah. is the one. Everything looked gorgeous. The little milk chocolate batons. Yeah my favorite products yep. and that's the only piece of chocolate i think i've ever really gone out and bought in my life because they're just incredible you were the epitome of health i was the epitome of health back then <laughs> yeah, they, they did a lot of incredible things and, yeah uh, you know the velvetizer the velvetizer is very good still very good yeah. hot chocolates the brand diversified very much so towards certainly towards the end of my time i think it's continued to do so away from being a, a chocolate retail store to a multi-channel cocoa-infused mm. brand. So you'd have beauty products, you'd have velvetizers that were making your hot chocolates, and there was clothing brands and products really? that were coming out of there by, by the end of it. But yeah, it really diversified. So and it's really stayed true to its principles, I'm guessing, as well, hasn't it, in terms of what it's given back? Yeah, for sure. And you hold it close to your heart, don't you? When someone mm. does something good for you, even if it's inadvertently, of course they mm. were paying me, and I was hopefully doing a good job, but you learn so much more. And I think that's when you know you're in a good place where there's actually so much more value to come from the time you're spending in and around work. How hard was it to leave there to go to the next role? I think I knew my time had come. So on one hand, there was a lot of, I guess you look at it, a lot of I put these things in place, they're ingrained in my time that I've spent here. It's hard to leave as a team that I've built. Mm -hmm. But on a personal level, if I think back to the whole time that I was there, one of the reasons for taking that role in 2010 was like that was just as my son had been born. The site was five minutes from my home. And this is another one of the things that I value. And I think I want to make sure that I give that back, this time to people. That you know, If my son had a harvest festival or if he had a school assembly, I was in a really blessed position that they let me just take that time. You know, I think it's more common 
now yeah, it's getting as, there, as, sure. as people are more flexible but you're yeah. talking 15 years ago and i was afforded whatever time i needed and as a dad as a new dad at the time that was just so invaluable to me yeah. mm. it's a, you know it's a really interesting question how do you know when your time is up when you're in a job i bet there's a ton of people that are either listening to this or right now sitting in jobs not quite knowing whether the time is to take the leap i definitely got comfortable yeah i, I think i ran out of steam yeah and you know, you know your own personal values and sometimes that's hard to see when you're in it yeah but when you do take stock when you do have that reflection point and go i'm no longer the best version of me yeah and that can portray itself in a number of ways mm. can't it you know i just didn't have the energy that i know is when i'm firing and on all cylinders i'm pretty full on and that wasn't there anymore so that's not fair on the business either they need to get the best version of me yeah. and i want to feel like i'm getting yeah. the best version of me and i think i learned a lot about myself of i know where i operate the best because mm. you prefer the start of the journey more so i think when i look at impact evolve now you know we, we're quite overt now about what how our target audience is you know entrepreneurial fast-paced high growth we've got the battle scars to know what's needed at those different phases of those growth journeys whether that's from the tools the tech the processes the system the people the culture the behaviors they differ and they change yeah and one of the biggest risks is founders not recognizing when that change needs to happen ahead mm. of the change mm. and that's the skill set can you get the sweet spot can you make the change at the time before it's going to start to cost you money or be detrimental to your culture or yeah. you've got to unwind a people problem that you perhaps hadn't seen coming and if you'd had your eye on it, you could have. Um, but you're so busy growing the brand and the business, you miss it. I don't know if I've ever asked you this question before, Jimmy, but as a consultant walking into businesses to try to uncover those problems, have you ever walked into a business before and gone, I can't work with these people? Yeah, I, but we I... were insistent. <laughs> 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 but have you ever said no or you've thought, oh, I don't think this one's for me because they're either too rigid or they don't want to change their ways? The very first time that happened to me last week. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it never went anywhere to the point where I walked in and I'd committed and then wanted to retract. But I certainly had an initial conversation and it was a business that was very corporate right large scale and didn't really have the ingredients in it that would give me and my team i think the fun the interest and we need to absolutely add significant value to mm. them and if i don't think those things work or align that's the first time i've practiced saying i don't think we're right for you and it felt strange that's interesting yeah, it felt strange it's the first time but that said i do think that's because we are quite overt about what we're looking for in terms of a client we know who our ideal client is you, you guys fit in that profile yeah very very well can I ask you a question, Trent? Of course you can, pal. In terms of what Jamie's offered our business, yeah. what do you think he's made the most difference in? One of them is just pure and simple knowledge because me and you accidentally started this business with no operational background. We just find ourselves in this building. So it might be the, the hours and hours of conversation and questions and picking Jamie's brains on certain bits. And then second of all, I think it's the accountability thing. I think we've got a great personal relationship, but also it's always healthy to have somebody on the outside saying, this is my thoughts, what are you going to do about it? It's interesting just taking a moment and thinking back and reflecting. We like reflecting sometimes in this podcast. <laughs> but it's almost that whole idea of you're pointing out things that we sort of already know, but we need to be told it. That bit of expertise has been priceless for us. Yeah, it's good to know. And I think that is quite common. I would say 90, if not higher percent of businesses that are going to the founders think they've got problem A or B and we spend a bit of time in there and we say, well, we're not dismissing that you've got problem A and B, but your root cause of your problem mm. is here. And 
that's the extra added value that we can bring. I think the other interesting point is that when you, when you start off, you're in the trenches and mm. you build a rapport with your team of those people that are in that those trenches with you. And that means a hell of a lot. It's almost unbreakable yeah. because you don't cross that line of loyalty. The amount of times that you've had to rely on those people to get you out of jail, to do things that go and above and beyond. There's an absolute recognition of their journey, of their skills. But what I often find is that, you know, when you get to a certain stage of a business, those people are perhaps not the right people mm. to move on to the next level with you. And I don't think there's a harder challenge for a founder to face into than that discussion. And mm. I see it in pretty much every business that's growing fast. So we've grown quite fast in our first year. So year on year, about 400% growth. And you've come in and said lots of things completely warranted. But again, it's that outside in view. Because if, if I sat down with you or you sat down with me saying, we're running the business as we were 12 months ago, but we're four times the size, do you think that's correct? Both of us would go, absolutely not. We need to change it. Mm -hmm. But somebody coming in and just saying that to us, it's like, well, of course we need to change. We're four times the size. And then it's the second step. Well, here's my advice on how to do so. Sometimes my value and our value comes in just giving you the confidence to execute. Yeah. You, know, you often know the direction that you need to go in or you've at least narrowed it down to some sensible options. But getting that verification is you know invaluable isn't it because mm. it's it's quite nerve-wracking decisions sometimes that you're coming up with particularly if people are involved and mm. team and culture and behaviors and can i ask you one more question in the back of that then Mate, you're really pu pushing your luck now because you are you're totally right you need to have the confidence to do what you're doing and have a vision to get there and be able to make stupid decisions sometimes yep. would you be able to do it by yourself i think first of all i wouldn't want to be doing it by myself because I think I'd be quite lonely. And we have we still have such a great time. That's mm. the driving force of why we're running this business and growing it and so ambitious mm. and excited about it. Yeah. So I wouldn't particularly want to. Probably could, but A, wouldn't want to, and B, nowhere near as successful. The point I'm trying to get at is I'm interested in that kind of, your role, Jim, is almost like saying you're on the right path or this bit's right, but this bit's very, very... And sometimes founders will go, no, I don't believe you. I think there is a certain psyche with founder-led businesses that mm. you know means you're always going to be up against that challenge of there is a certain direction that you're going to go in and you've got to make sure that your operation your business your team mm. can keep up with it mm. whether you agree with it or not i can give my advice i can give my guidance and i can work as hard as i can possibly work from a strategic and tactical perspective to make sure we don't fail and that we can keep up with the business growth and challenge but it becomes tiring it becomes exhausting Mm. And I did get exhausted after, you know, 10 years at Hotel Chocolat, two and a bit years at Gusto, all through COVID. My first day at Gusto was the day Boris locked us down in 2020. Is that right? It's oh. funny, that's now becoming a bit of a seminal moment in lots of people that we speak to. Everyone remembers yeah. where they were when COVID hit and it's something we're still trying to recover from. But that... That was my first, day, was first day in a business that I knew the challenge was yeah. double the size of the business. My role was to come in and establish the supply chain, the operations, the team build the infrastructure that was going to enable multiple sites to be opened in the UK. So for people who aren't familiar with Gusto, just outline what Gusto is. Subscription-based business, you know, mailbox recipe company where you can select a number of meals per week to be delivered to your door. So yeah. it's very focused on health, convenience, price, choice. And 
you know, my role there was end to end from working with the supply base to forecasting short shelf life goods that got three days life across multiple sites. Whatever the operational <laughs> vertigo is, that gives me vertigo that just really thinking does. of that, isn't it? That is one heck of a spreadsheet. And But if you think about that from a, a perspective of Boris locks us down, Gusto are in the ideal position to then capitalise upon the change in customer behaviour of needing to order online. It actually takes me back probably what my proudest moment in my career was at Gusto where you know quite often and you've been in this boat where you go and ask your team because you're really busy you go with your begging bowl a bit and say we need overtime we need support we need people to try and do some more hours I think the mindset completely shifted during Covid mm-hmm. where all of a sudden we had to work out how to keep 500 people safe and in a job but no longer were we to do the best job that we could but there were key workers there were people at risk that were reliant upon us to get food to them so it became a staple requirement now of actually we've got a job to do here now people people are relying on us now to do a job this is no longer a luxury this is a a requirement we need to make sure that box turns up at that person's door and it needs to have the things in it that they've paid for because they can't get out of their house and the mindset shift in people was absolutely phenomenal i've never been prouder of a bunch of people that went above and beyond to do whatever was necessary when you have to think they were also worried for their own safety they didn't know what it meant for them in their role and i think these are the things that often get missed in a business just how much sits behind the engine room to make these things happen that team were phenomenal absolutely phenomenal they went above and beyond day in day out you never had to ask them what more can we do how can we get this product to people that need it that rely on it the pressure was immense. I, I, I've never personally felt so much pressure in a role, but also I'd never felt that camaraderie of we will make this happen, we will find a way. And was that was that pressure self-inflicted or was that, did, was that coming down loud and clear from the aspirations of the business? I think both. So I'm you know, incredibly personally driven, so I would mm-hmm. naturally want to make sure that we could do the things that had been set out to do but also very conscious of the team and how they were feeling and some of those people were remote and had never met their teammates um, I'd never met some of them so we're still learning the job remember it's baptism of fire so every one of those elements kind of tests you but the thing I learned was when your back's against the wall that's where your team really comes through and you can recruit all of the skill in the world but if you recruit the right character yeah if you yeah, recruit the right right people with the right mindset the right heart the right desire you're more than three quarters of the way there. You are quite big on people interviewing and getting the right people into a business and obviously having worked in loads of businesses, people are everything, right? Mm. How do you get the best out of people? Mm. I try to relate to everyone at every level. There's no real airs or graces about me. I know what I am mm. and I know what I'm not. And I think when that authenticity comes through, I think people relate to that. But also there's a world outside of work and I think when you can connect in with people around what makes them tick, what they enjoy, what they don't, everyone's got things going on in their personal lives, when, you, when you're when you able to relate to that and, and figure out the levers that you need to pull, mm. I think that's something that gets the best out of people. If I go back to kind of when I was younger, I couldn't figure out why, why I was no good at school. You know, I didn't necessarily find it hard, but I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't take in what was being said to me. So therefore, my best pastime at school was to be the clown. And, get people to laugh at me and probably not change much now but I didn't know anything about different learning styles and you get taught in a certain way I couldn't take that verbal instruction in but I was not old enough or clever enough to understand why I thought that was the way that you were taught Um, and it wasn't until I started on my coaching journey at football so I've coached kids teams for many years and part of that coaching course was about the different learning styles and how you get the best out of kids or people or 
you know, team, whatever that might be, and that there are multiple different learning styles. And as part of a leader, whether that's my leadership in the coaches, you know, part of the team in the football team, or whether that's in work, it's my job to adapt to them, mm. not their job to adapt to me. Mm. And I think that's the difference. When you recognize that and you take responsibility for saying, I'm the one that's got to adapt. I've got to find a way to get the best out of that person. They are who they are to some extent. And I think that's what sets people apart. I'm not saying I'm brilliant at it, but I've recognized that that's a skill and I work hard at it. Do you feel a little bit let down by school for not getting that right whenever you were there? Because I certainly do as well a little bit. There's certain subjects that I feel they had one way of teaching it and that was it. Yeah. And actually looking back now, I think I'm really fascinated in that, but I cannot believe that it was just a one route of teaching economics or computer science or something, things which are quite important to me now, but I don't necessarily feel school was particularly adaptable to how they actually engaged pupils. Mm. Looking back, schools are brilliant at doing that now, of having different ways of bringing pupils in. When I was back at school, she's back in the same kind of yep. era as you. Century as me. Centuries ago. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't do that very well. I'm just kind of curious if you feel let down by that. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about it that way, Rich. It's a good question. I, I don't think I do feel let down because I had fun at school. Yeah. So I was never one of those kids that you know went there and suffered. If you like, I didn't feel sorry for myself. I found other ways of entertaining myself and that was usually being the class clown. I personally don't feel let down because I feel like once I got out of out school and into work, I recognised there was a different way pretty quickly. But I was lucky because I had people that didn't ask for a university certificate. They recognised there was something different or something of value, God knows what it was, in me and they mm -hmm. gave me an opportunity. Mm. So what is your learning style then? Very practical, hands-on. You know, in the environment, less theory, more practice. Fits quite nicely with the target audience of people I like to work with. It's usually about, look, your theory's lovely, but we need to get some stuff done. Yeah. And that's where I have the most fun. That's where I feel like I had the most value. And that's where once a business grew to a certain size, I knew that I was no longer myself or adding the most value for that business because it becomes more corporate. It's harder to make decisions. Yeah. It slows down somewhat. You've got red tape. Yeah, and you know that's fine, but it's just not for me. Why did you decide to set up Impact Evolve? What was the thinking behind it? I was getting further and further away from the things I enjoyed doing the most. So you know, you find yourself in board meetings, strategy sessions, writing board papers. And I'm not very good at it, if mm. I'm being honest. Mm. <laughs> and I don't enjoy it. So why would I want to spend half my life doing it? And it's a necessity of the role once you reach a certain yeah, level. Yeah. You know, so it's not to belittle it, but it's not my strength, and I don't enjoy it. So I wanted to look at doing more of the things that I enjoy, doing more of the things that I know I'm good at. But I think the thing that I absolutely love the most of why I started Impact Evolve and why I'm now getting that is that you get to unlock potential. And, you know, it's a short life, isn't it? So, Was it a big decision to go solo? Yeah, very big. I've got Lisa at home. I've got three boys. Mortgage like everyone else has. Mm. And I was in a well-paid high position. Mm. So to leave that and just start from nothing as you'll know is a is a risk of course mm. it's a risk but you have to back yourself don't you else be quiet and carry on down the route that you're going and i wasn't prepared to do that i'd always wanted to start my own business i just never really knew where or how mm. and funnily enough i always used to think that i've got to come up with a product really yeah i always what well, that was my blocker it was 
what product am I going to design? How am I going to come up with something yeah. that's better than what someone else has got or that doesn't exist? And for the life of me, I never saw that actually the thing that I could go and do is the thing that I've Just, already got. Trent asked a great question. It, I've asked it a few times in the podcast and it's the most perfect question. I think that's something we're, we've asked every single guest so far and it's really insightful. Are you successful? I'm proud of myself mm -hmm. because I never thought that I'd be in a position to be able to offer these opportunities to people to offer my opportunities like this to me and my family and we've got a hell of a lot of work to do but mm. I can see a really clear direction and I can see a market and I can I can see the route we're going and I'm very confident in it am I successful I don't know how to answer that probably not at this moment in time because I think there's always more to give mm. and I hope that's not a stereotypical answer it's how do you measure it I mean I've got a great family I've got a nice home I'm lucky enough to have this opportunity that we've carved out. So that's success, I guess. Mm. Um, bringing the kids up properly, giving them the right morals and values, that success, we try to do a good job of that. So mm. in many ways, yes. Am I finished? And does that then classify as success? I'd say no. There's a lot to go. It's very hard to define finished as well with success. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's interesting. You bring your family straight into it in a way that other people haven't done. I think you see very much this kind of life-work balance is a precarious thing that you've got to try and get right because you value that side of your life so much, don't you? Yeah, very much so. I think, you know, when you're younger, I see my mum and dad work incredibly hard. Yeah. And I think that's where those values are instilled. At school, you probably think, well, I'm not going to do too much here because I'm not very good at this school lark, so therefore I probably won't do particularly well when I get out, is the mindset that starts to get in the psyche or the thought process that gets, gets ingrained. And then I think it becomes a, right, I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> scenario i quite like doing that it's good fun yeah mm. we spoke about that, that previously yeah. didn't we that belligerence finders have yeah of, okay you tell me i can't do something i'm damn well gonna yeah, do I'll it yeah i'll do it twice yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. And i will make sure i also think that successful is a journey and not a destination i don't think i'll ever say i'm successful but then if i get towards the end of my life i think i was happy 90 percent of my days and had a positive impact probably class that as successful mm. but it's not like we cash out and get x amount of money or mm. whatever i don't think it's a material thing yeah i wouldn't attach something like those tangibles to it no to be honest because i think that puts you under it becomes a it becomes a fail or succeed exactly. line in the sand doesn't it and, and that's quite dangerous and what do you do when you get there if you set something very material in your head and it happens you're gonna have a void in your life like yeah. what do i do now and you read about business people celebrities that seem successful on paper that not happy. Are definitely not successful because they're not happy. Yeah. No, agreed. If somebody came around and waved a check and said, I'll buy the business, then it would feel like I'm the opposite of success, basically, because you didn't get to complete what you wanted to do and you do it for the wrong reasons or X, Y, Z. So, mm. yeah, it's a very, very difficult one to answer, but it's why it's a really fascinating question. Are you successful? It's probably, the, it's probably your greatest moment, Trent. Peak. Is it? It is. You've, you've peaked, peaked. Yeah, you've yeah, peaked. Yeah. It's taken a while, hasn't it? You've peaked. We know what Impact Evolve is, but if anybody's out there listening to this podcast... Yep. So we are a supply chain operations consultancy. We ideally look to work with founder-led businesses that are scaling, growing, um, have reached a certain point in their journey where they realize that you know supply chain and operations is a thing. It needs to level up, whether that's through its people, processes, tech, culture, behaviors. And we are able to come in and you know, identify where those opportunities are and come up with a plan that says, look, these are the things that you need to tackle first. This is how we would do it. We can help in a number of different ways through you know, developing the systems or hiring people. We've got a great network where we, we can identify the talent 
talent that's needed in your team at the stage of growth that you're at. We're proud of what we've done so far and thankful to get to work with people like yourselves and lots of other founders that have all got a brilliant story behind them. And if you want to know more about Jamie, I would heartily recommend being one of his followers on LinkedIn because he's a bit of a minefield of great information and a great person to follow. And Trent is ever so slightly jealous that you've still got more followers than I'm on LinkedIn. I know, he's trying to catch me up. He's trying to, he's trying. I only posted three times today. (laughs) My my website is is currently under construction. That's due to go live in the next six to eight weeks. But yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn up to then. Anyone can reach out, drop me a note, drop me a message, even if it's just for... an intro chat networking call i'd be delighted to say hello and and see how we might work together in the future thank you for being a guest on the podcast thank you very much mate thank you so much for having me yeah i've uh this is my debut on a podcast so i won't i won't lie i was incredibly nervous sweaty palms (laughs) um but hopefully it was some interest i think the most pressure i've ever seen you under was by to walk into the studios of this podcast yeah yeah forget covid and 500 people (laughs) and and that's my comfort zone so those types of things are just second nature when you've done them for so long but pushing yourself out of the comfort zone this is why we're here this is why we exist isn't it and i'm thankful for the opportunity so let's do some more podcasts (laughs) thank you for sharing your story with us jimmy cheers buddy pleasure thank you Jamie's good, isn't he? Oh, he knows his stuff, doesn't he? I like Jamie. Do you know what it is about Jamie? It's just being in his presence makes you feel very assured. When you do what we do for a living, I think that's kind of important. But do you know what I've been thinking? What have you been thinking, Pat? I've been thinking about your hook, and I'm not going to say this person's name because I will get it wrong. So the question that I posed was, Wang Dong Yuk didn't have any money, basically. He sold his laptop. What he created was written in 2009. Right. But... In 2019, he had to sell his laptop because he'd been rejected by 10 different people for something that he then sold and it became huge and he's worth tens of millions of dollars right now. Is his alter ego name Sai? No. Well, you're thinking of Gangnam 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 Style. Style. I don't know if that was, I'm sure that was before 2019. And it's not Flappy Duck. Any more hints? I'm trying to think what would be the best hook to give you. (gasps) Hook a duck. What he wrote became something that was watched around the world, became a phenomenon very, very fast. So it was like a film? Not a film. TV program. Squid Games. Correct. Yeah. He created Squid Game. He took it to 10 different studios who rejected him to the point where he had no money, but he believed in his project so much. He sold his laptop for $675. Netflix picked it up and it became the most watched TV show in history. Really? That's why he is worth tens of millions. Tens of billions. Tens of billions. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Business Interrupted. We really appreciate you listening. If you want to find out more about us, you can do so by following us on LinkedIn. No, you need to sell this a bit more. You always get to lack of energy towards the end of the podcast. <sighs> Give it some. We've been here for five hours. Give it some. Okay. Pete. You can follow us on LinkedIn at Business Interrupted or search LinkedIn Business Interrupted or go on Twitter and it's at Trent and Richard or go on Instagram and go Business Interrupted or go on to LinkedIn and find Richard Ardis and Trent Peak. <laughs> but one of those options will probably work and you can find us on all the usual channels and we appreciate a follow and don't forget to like and subscribe. Correct. <laughs> is that right? It is good. Yeah. <laughs> right, we'll see you next time on Business Interrupted. Ta-da. Hit subscribe on your podcast platform to receive every episode first. 
and don't forget to follow us at Business Interrupted. <laughs>